Welcome uh, to Collective Mass Radio, the second episode. I'm sitting here with uh, Jimmy Gorham. Is that a correct pronunciation? Yes. Excellent. Um, and he is the game designer at Fuel LA. Fuel is a, um, a bigger company. They've got an Ottawa office and an LA office. Um, they've made a lot of different titles. They've made a couple of titles for, um, for PlayStation Network. So they've done the whole console deal. They do a lot of mobile titles. They've also got a couple of um, online MMOs. So um, I'm here chatting to Jimmy specifically with these experiences um, with uh, monetary systems. Um, so he's actually a uh, a, uh, a poker player with uh, world renown, and we'll chat a little bit about that later. But he's got a very good grasp on um, on financial systems, and we'll have some interesting chats about that. So without ado, I'm going to hand over to Jimmy to give a little bit of an explanation for himself on. Uh, on how he won the World Series of Poker and how he got into video games. So welcome, Jimmy. All right. Thanks, Roger. Uh, <laughs> yeah, so I, I uh, after college, or sort of during college, I became a uh, professional poker player. And at the time, it felt like free money. Um, it was great to learn and spend my time playing a game and profiting from it. That was sort of one of my life's dreams. Uh, I remember when EverQuest came out and I saw people selling their character for like $2,000 on eBay and I thought, I need to do that. Uh, So anyway, poker was great and I uh, played professionally for about five years. I I won one World Series of Poker Bracelet, had a couple World Series Final Tables, uh, extensive cash gameplay, and uh, then eventually moved into game design. And, um, and and what what moved from from being a uh, successful professional poker player to uh, to video games? Like, how, how did you make that transition, and why? I've always been a gamer, so that part was easy. And uh, I found poker generally to be an un—it was not a fulfilling profession, I guess. Uh, you know, there was you could make money, although that got harder towards the end as a lot of the the um, bad players went broke and the good players stuck around. Um, but I just felt like I wasn't doing anything meaningful with my life, I guess. Uh, and so I decided I wanted to, to change gears. And game design appealed to me because in my poker career, I saw how uh, the rules of the game can have such an impact not just on how people play the game, but who those people are. You know, I saw over time friends change and become different people because of poker. And a lot of that is because there was money on the line. Um, But it was just, you know, it was a case study of how powerful games can be in changing people's behavior. And so I thought that was uh, really fascinating. And I decided I wanted to to study that and, and get into game design. That's one of the best reasons I've ever heard. Most people are just like, well, I like games. I want to make games. But, uh, yeah. But there's that, too. (laughs) I was playing games all night last night and today before before coming over here. So So, um, you say that you play games. Is there any specific games that you love um, that that you feel are really cool right now? Uh, Hearthstone is super cool. I have been a, a Magic the Gathering player for about... 12 years or something at this point and uh, Hearthstone is really similar to Magic but they've made just enough changes that it feels like a fresh game while keeping all of the the strategy to it Uh, and it sort of fits in with the RPG elements of the Warcraft universe Uh, 
And the monetary system seems really fair. I think I've spent like $8 and I've put in maybe 200 hours or something. Uh, so I, I've been a big fan of that game. That's, that's excellent. We were talking earlier about monetary value of games and how um, sometimes I feel that the free-to-play model has been a blight on, uh, on game making in general. But um, uh, as you just pointed out, sometimes it does work. Um, so I'd like to get your thoughts on the whole free-to-play I know it's an open question, but I wanted to talk, let's discuss how you first think that people have done it badly and how you think that people have done it well and why. I think it all comes down to um, the intent and the execution. I mean, if you look at it one way, free-to-play is a fantastic proposition to the consumer because it allows people to test out a game and, and... see if they really enjoy it before they commit money to it versus, you know, in the old days, you had to spend $60 up front just to even find out you don't like something. At the same time, uh, free-to-play can have hidden agendas that are sort of predatory, in my opinion. And and it's not just free-to-play. You know, a good example is, like, if you ever make an in-app purchase on an iOS product, they don't send you a receipt for, like, a week and a half. And the only reasoning there, they could send you a receipt immediately like Steam does or like most companies do, but they right. want you to be able to spend more money without knowing how much money you're spending. Right. And that, that to me is where it crosses a line from good for the consumer to uh, bad for the consumer when companies are looking at ways of how can I take advantage of people or sort of put them in a situation where they don't even realize the consequences of their actions such that I can maximize my profit. Right, right. Um, so coming from from I mean, like the, the gambling world, the casino industry, like there they're very open about their objectives, which is to take money from you, and they kind of incite this idea of like a competition where you can be the special one to get the money. Um, but it's definitely a um, a whole gaming system that has been alive for a good, I guess, a hundred years plus. Um, how would you? When you take a look at casino games, how do you see that that um, modern free-to-play games have pulled from the casino games? Well, there's a lot. I mean, even with casino games, there's there's good and bad. You know, there's the one side where they're creating an environment where people can just go have fun, and they know that they're the odds aren't in their favor, but it's okay uh, because that's what they want to be doing. The other side is, you know, casinos can take advantage of gambling addiction and and they really go after people that they know have a problem, but that's why they're going after them in the first place. Right. So I I think there's a parallel with uh, free-to-play monetization models. You know, if if people are analyzing um, patterns of addiction and patterns of behavior and then trying to structure their game in such a way that it, like triggers off those brain chemicals of the near miss or, or of these things that the gambling industry has learned are ways to get people to put more money in. Right. Uh, you know, I, I think that, uh, that gaming companies can, or video game companies can be very similarly trying to take advantage of, of people uh, by putting them in a situation where they're not making an informed decision. Yeah. Um, you're talking about the near miss thing, and that just brought into mind Peggle, which I don't think is a, um, a particularly predatory game, but did use that whole time slow down 
thing with your last ball and the last peg. Um, and that was a very powerful moment for me. Like, those are the moments I, I, I remember the most from Peggle. Like, did I get it? Did I get it? Get it? Yes! It was awesome. Like, that whole build-up. And I know that I've been in the casino industry myself. And that whole, um, like, specifically delaying the last reels um, slowdown based on if I had gotten three cherries or whatever beforehand. A uh, really powerful tool. Have you seen that specifically used anywhere else in casual games? Uh... You know, I'm not sure that I have an example off the top of my head, but there's some really fascinating research out there into this phenomenon. It's like, if you think about it rationally, it shouldn't matter, you know, if, if a game requires you to get three X's in a row, it shouldn't matter if you get two X's and then a Y, or if you just get three random letters, either way you lose. But if you actually look at the brain chemicals and, and sort of the... Um, the uh, you know, the brain patterns of people who get the XXY, who get that really near miss, where they can imagine getting XXX and winning. Yeah. Those people come back. You know, those people think they almost won right. and think that that has some value, even though, you know, the net result is the same. They lost either way. Yeah. Uh, and, and there's a lot of research out there that shows that people respond to those events, you know, not rationally, but uh, but people aren't always rational. And, and so game designers have clued into that phenomenon and, and know that, uh, you know, if they want to make the most money, if, if their decisions are motivated by how do we make the most money, then they should, in fact, try to figure out ways to sort of trick people into spending. Yeah, I see. Um it's yeah that, that, that whole debacle is, is kind of um, a big topic right now of like responsible game design um, how do you feel I mean like you've got two sides here like one is you have to make money as an indie gamer um, or I mean an indie game maker or even you know triple A title you, you've got to make money you've got to cover your bills um, and the whole free to game model free to play game model on iOS is like all of a sudden you know you put in a year's worth of work and it's free so you have to design your game to make money where do you think the boundaries lie I mean it's tough it's <laughs> it's really tough it's it's a incredibly competitive marketplace there's so many people who are in this field because it's a passion of theirs and as a result it's it's uh, competitive to the point that there are no guarantees that you will make money Right. Um, you know, I think that in the end, value always wins out. Uh, there's certainly luck involved with which titles emerge and become flappy birds and, and which, you know, fall to the wayside. Yeah. But, uh, but if you can provide a product that's, that's by and large better than anything your competitors do, then I think people will be happy to spend money for that product because if you know if people are enjoying what they're doing they're usually willing to spend money on it but the hard part is how do you make a product that's that good right i feel like you know the marketplace is filled with really good products that didn't make it um and i mean part of it is maybe advertising budget because i mean the competitive it is a competitive marketplace um and I mean, like tools like Unity are making it easier and easier to get your game out there. Um, and now the problems lie elsewhere. It's no longer really technical. It's mostly how do I get visibility? And once I have visibility, how do I monetize that visibility? Um, 
And so from that point of view, um, do you have in your brain a secret formula for, uh, for monetization, like um, success? <laughs> Not really. Uh, I mean, I feel like the right thing to do is treat it like any other business and do the best that you can for your consumer because a happy customer is a repeat customer and a happy customer is one that might tell his friend about the thing that they're enjoying. Uh, so, you know, if you are a giant company and you know that people will play your game because of the IP attached to it or because of just how big your company is and the visibility, then you can afford to take more, uh, you know, take more stabs at the player and try to take advantage of people right. more to maximize. But if you're an independent developer, uh, you know, it's a gamble no matter what. It, it You need a lot of luck to make it big. But the only thing that can help you is doing your best for the customer, trying to give them a value proposition that's fair because everybody understands that you're putting in a lot of time and it costs money to make games and people are spending a lot of money on games. So, you know, you don't have to cheat them. You just have to offer your customer something that's fair, something that's valuable and, and something that they'll enjoy. Uh, and I think that's the best you can do in the end. Um, we were talking earlier about, uh, you were talking about $60 for a game, um, but back in the day you did have demos. You used to get the like PlayStation magazine, you'd have a disc full of like, 60 demos, which would give you five minutes and no satisfaction. Um, but the demo system doesn't seem to work that well on, um, on mobile platforms. Um, and uh, people who have hard pay gates, which is a technical term for it, uh, say that it doesn't work. Do you have any um, thoughts on that particular topic on why it doesn't work? Well, people get, get bored pretty quickly. Right. <laughs> uh, you know, if, if your game is very compelling, that model can work. But, uh, but if it's something that feels repetitive and the demo kind of gives away everything that is new about the experience, then a lot of times, you know, people who might have paid money to experience it will feel like they already have. Right. So in the terms of like the Angry Birds free versus Angry Birds full, do you think that's a viable model anymore? But Yeah, but that, I mean, the thing is free comes with advertisements, it comes with delays or it comes, you know, there's always hurdles in the free version that are just annoying enough that you'll keep playing, but you will want to get rid of them. And so some people will pay to get rid of those either ads or whatever the you know the pay the pay gate or you have to get your friend to like this to advance to the next level you know whatever it is it has to be just the right amount of annoying so that people will pay to overcome that barrier but the barrier is not enough to just prevent somebody from playing it completely uh, because you know there's also this misconception that people who never pay money aren't valuable when in actual practice, somebody who never pays a dime has real value uh, to the company because that person might tell his friend uh, who becomes competitive and wants a higher score. And so his friend spends money and his friend would have never spent money if he hadn't been playing your game for free in the first place. Right. Uh, you know, so every every player has value whether they pay or not. Right. Uh, that's a really good, really good point. Um... Yeah, I've been hearing the term friction, which is the, the level of annoyance. Um, if I came to you, I had just like a, a let's say, a regular game, you know, a, say a puzzle game. And um, you want to say, okay, I've got a puzzle game. I know that two years ago I could have sold this for $1.99. Now 
I don't know what to do anymore. Um, how would you, what would the steps, um, what, what steps would you take to try and make it um, a successful free-to-play game? I mean, for one thing, I would look for ways to, to find sort of alternate revenue sources. One thing that's great about Unity is the community that, that's being built up and the fact that if you design something and develop something the right way, you can go and sell that code to other developers to make their life easier and to make you a little money. Uh, so I, I think the best you can do is to realize that it is a gamble, even if you make the world's best game, unless you have a giant company behind you or a giant marketing budget. It's, it's a big gamble, so your best bet is to look for other ways to gain value out of that experience, right. either through uh, leveraging your code and, and selling that in the asset store or through license deals or you know finding other, uh, other partners who are interested in, in what you're developing. Um... Right, yeah, that, that's really good. Um, people generally forget, uh, with the value of games, feels very disposable. I write a game, I throw away the code, I write it again, throw away. It's really good to remember that you can then take that stuff that you've done, package it up, and push it out. Um, then let's say, let, let's take uh, Candy Crush, because everybody knows Candy Crush and it sells a huge. It's fun. Yeah, yeah, it is fun. Like, what? What would you say, like taking a look at the difference between Bejeweled and Candy Crush, or the key elements of addictiveness? Uh, Candy Crush has more constraints. I think that's a big one. Uh, you know, each level feels slightly different than the last. Bejeweled feels more like you're doing the same thing over and over and over again. Right. Whereas Candy Crush has different objectives on the level, uh, different starting conditions, modifiers. Um, you know, there's just, uh, I don't even know how many levels there are in that game, but there's so somebody hundreds like or something. 500. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, they, they did a great job of sort of taking a core mechanic that everybody knows and, and making slight tweaks on it uh, in different, you know, the different sections had different themes. And I think that went a long way to driving the uh, replayable aspect of it. Right, right. Because everybody likes Bejeweled and played it once or twice, but only a few people got addicted I mean I'm sure still a lot of people got addicted to it but it, but it wasn't quite the success that Candy Crush was and right. I think a lot of that is because it was it felt more like you were playing the same game every time and competing for a high score yeah one of the things that I, I am constantly fascinated about in this market is the fact that you can take a game mechanic and somebody can say hey that is that is a dead system and then all of a sudden somebody can take that just reimagine a few things and all of a sudden that whole game mechanic will, will come back um, one of the things that I find very interesting and that I didn't see before really um, uh, Candy Crush was a whole idea of like lives. I guess you could see it from energy, from Farmville and all that kind of stuff. But the idea of like you can play as much as you want, but you've got X amount of time. There's, a, there's like a stop. Right? They don't cut you off completely. They say, hey, come back in a little while. Or for this particular annoyance, we can get rid of it for a couple of bucks. Yeah. Um, do you want to comment on that kind of idea? Have you seen it in other places maybe years ago that I, I've forgotten about? You know, I think that that is something that uh, started with Facebook games, but it's definitely happened more in mobile. And I think it's just sort of a fascinating change in technology. I mean, it used to be that technology exists to serve the user, and it's always on the user's terms. Mm -hmm. And nowadays... 
especially with mobile, you see that the user is sort of at the beck and call of the game sometimes. Right. I mean, especially with notifications. It's like you set something up, and in four hours, your phone sends you a message. It's like, hey, dummy, your, your farm is ready, or your zombies, <laughs> or whatever it is. And sort of the user is beholden to the timing of the game. Right. Uh, I find that really fascinating, and I think there's a lot of interesting design angles there where people can be uh, sort of playing a game without even realizing they're not actively engaged with it the phone's in their pocket but the game is, is sort of happening without them and right. they'll be pulled back in at the right moments so um, just taking a look at, at, at the difference between mobile and PC and console games um, where where do you find the most value in games these days I mean some people are hardcore Xbox players, some people are hardcore Facebook players. Um, and I'm seeing, I just see a personal shift a lot more towards Steam. And I was wondering if, you, if you'd seen a different direction. It just depends who you're designing for. I mean, it, more people are using mobile devices than ever before. Uh, at Fuel, we target, uh, we mostly make products for kids. And looking at the statistics, uh, I mean, something like 40% of fourth graders either own or have daily access to a tablet computer. Wow. And uh, another 20 or so percent on top of that have phones. It's just the majority of users, if you're sort of targeting everyone who plays games, uh, your biggest appeal is going to be on mobile devices. However, you know, if you're targeting somebody who's been playing games for years and they're more of a hardcore gamer, then the PC or a console is going to have more of an appeal to them. Um, but there's a lot, you know, there's a lot of uh, risks associated with both both sides. Are right. you trying to build something mass market or are you trying to build something that appeals to a very specific niche of gamers and you sort of have to optimize for whichever route you go? Right. Um, well, switching tack a little bit, I mean, uh, working with you on a couple of games... Um, you have seen Fuel transition um, from uh, a non-Unity shop to a Unity shop. Um, how have you seen that? I mean, has that been, been comfortable? Have you seen it being good for the company? Yeah. I, I mean, there's always some growing, growing pains when you switch technology. But I think Unity has a really great ease of use. And people who aren't accustomed to it uh, get used to it pretty quickly. Right. So uh, there haven't been any any big problems. There, you know, there's been a few hiccups as people get used to it, and I'm sure we're not making the best use of it that we could right. quite yet. But uh, but overall, it's been it's been pretty easy, and I don't see us sort of I don't see us going back to Flash anytime soon. <laughs> so. Yeah, uh, you guys have definitely put out a, an impressive bunch of games. The the Da Vinci's Demons game is really beautiful. It's well done. Thanks. Uh, you did some stuff for Phantom, which is good. Um, uh, talking about the, the Fanta game and you working hands-on with Unity and the level design, um, how, did you, how did you find that using like custom-made Unity um, editors to do your things? Was it easy or uh, compared to your other experiences? Yeah, it's great having everything in the inspector. I right. mean, I know how to code a little and I can get into the code if I have to. But I'm always sort of afraid I'm going to just destroy the entire project and have to call somebody <laughs> over to come fix it for me. So it, it's great with Unity that all of the variables that I want access to are placed in the inspector. 
And if I find I want access to something that's not in there, it's really easy to go make it public and, and sort of put it into the inspector. Right. Uh, so, you know, it just is an easy way to allow people to work on it without feeling like they're going to destroy the whole project and have their <laughs> team hate them. Right. there, That's, that's, that's definitely uh, something. So um, we're going to take a little break right now and we'll, we'll be back in a couple. And we're back. Um, Jimmy has had a lot of experience with uh, crowdfunding and um, um, also has an interest in virtual currencies and how that will affect the game market. He's got some pretty interesting ideas. So um, before we get on to that, let's chat a little bit about crowdfunding and um, some of your interesting ideas about that. Um, sure. So... I find crowdfunding to be endlessly fascinating, and I, I sort of scroll through Kickstarter almost every day looking for new projects. Um, <laughs> and I, I think it's just a great way to, you know, we were talking about before how much of a gamble it is to create a game and release it onto the market and then see if people like it. Right. Uh, but through crowdfunding, it's like it's a different approach because. You sort of make a promise of what the game is going to be, and then you ask the community to buy into that as an idea. Right. Uh, and it's remarkable. I mean, people, you know, we, it's hard to get somebody to spend $2 on a, on a mobile game. At the same time, there's people pledging $500, $1,000 or more on some of these crowdfunded projects because it's a different mindset. You know, they feel like they're part of... Uh, they feel like they're part of a team that's sort of building this thing collectively. Right, so they have invested interest. Yeah, they don't feel like a customer. They, f they feel more like they're, they're helping to get it built in the first place. Right, right. Uh, so I, I think that there is, you know, that's one side of it. The other side is it's just good old-fashioned market research. It's if you can communicate your idea effectively, Kickstarter is a great platform to get eyeballs. Uh, and the press seems to be pretty engaged with the idea of Kickstarter, so you can usually get uh, some articles and you can get some exposure. I mean, it takes a bit of effort, but uh, but if you get your idea out there and it doesn't get backed, you know, it's a great way of realizing that you probably weren't going to make a lot of money if you had put in all that time and energy and built the thing anyway. So, right. uh, you know, it's good market research. It definitely is. Um, a lot of people that I've spoken to think that uh, Kickstarter is um, oversaturated. Do you think it is? No, I, I don't. I I think the consumers are starting, you know, the novelty of it has worn off. Right. It, before, Kickstarter was something new and exciting. And now people are more savvy and they realize that, you know, they could spend some money on a video game and play it right now. Or they can spend some money on a game that's going to take three years to develop and they might even have delays. It might not even get made. You know, there's, there's no guarantees. Right. So the, there's definite challenges there and it's, it's not as easy as it was when it was new. But I would not call it oversaturated. There's still plenty of success stories. Uh, but what you kind of find when you look at those is that they really are special ideas and, and special products. Right, right. Um, what about the, I mean, like there's been a couple of articles about guys who've uh, pledged to make a game and then taking that money and uh, run and bought a house. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I you, mean, you, you think that's affected the customer's mindset yet? About I'm sure it has. I, I'm sure, you know, people, a good example is um, 
you know, recently there was a project on Kickstarter called Pantheon: Rise of the Fallen, and it was a uh, it's a MMO um, launched by Brad McQuaid, and he was on you know he was the original designer of EverQuest, right, and has success, but he also was the lead designer of Vanguard, which had an abysmal launch, and like to this day, people have not forgiven him. You know, it's like if if you put yourself out there in the public forum and then you don't deliver on your promises, people don't forget about that stuff. So, you know, there's there's uh, I guess if somebody went on Kickstarter and they raised 10 million dollars and they thought to themselves, wow, I can just take this money and I'll never have to work a day in my life. There's a risk of that. But if they just raise enough for one game, they know they really have to make a good game. Otherwise, they'll never get funding again for anything. Right, right. Um, well, that that's certainly interesting. Have you heard much about the um, the new proposed change in laws uh, for the United States to allow people to sell shares in companies? Yeah, I think it's brilliant. It's part of the Jobs Act, I believe. Yes, yes. Uh, I think that it's astonishing how much money people will pay to feel like they're a part of a new venture when they actually don't have any equity in it. Right. I mean, they have some virtual equity. They'll have like a <laughs> special avatar, yeah, or a t-shirt. Um, but uh, but allowing people to to buy shares is going to make things tougher from a regulatory sense. But it also is going to allow you know. There's some consumers out there who might believe in a project but not want to give any money because they want to wait to see if it's actually built. Right. But if they feel like they have a piece of the upside. Uh, because they got in early and they actually have some stock or they have some shares in it. I, I think it'll just sort of open up, um, you know, more ability for independent publishers and developers to go out there and, and sort of appeal directly to the consumer. Mm. I'm really excited about the idea because when I first heard about it, I kind of I didn't even think about uh, what the legal stature was for the whole thing. But the idea that instead of just going onto Kickstarter and saying, hey, donate for my game, you can say, hey, I'm starting a game company. This is my cred. Like, and, and then crowdfund your company. And those people now, um, instead of just donating money and not getting anything uh, valuable back, will then now be able to get shares. And also, from the whole point of view, like the downside of Kickstarter is that there is a um, nobody's held to their promises. Where still with this, you are held to your pro- your promises. If you are um, a, a owner of stock, you are you know you you are owed uh, certain things. And if there's gross neg- negligence, you can get your money back. You know, so it's if there's money there to get back. <laughs> yes, that's true. That's true. Um, well, that's yeah. That's it's it's very interesting things. I mean, do you have a project that you've ever wanted to start to kickstart? Yeah, um, right now, actually, I'm I'm involved in a project called Kidcoin. Ah, so Bitcoin plus Kickstarter, bring it on! Yeah. Uh, so our idea is to I don't know how uh, technical to get, but we want to build a video game into Bitcoin. Right now, to mine Bitcoin. You just leave your computer on and it sort of uses the extra computing cycles in the background. Um, but what we want to do is require a user to play a video game and use the game data as part of that mining process. Right. 
and so the the reasoning there is that we can create a video game that actually pays people to play it. Uh, you know, it's rather than free to play, it pays the user to play. Uh, and, you know, they may not, or players may not be able to make a million dollars playing the game, but if they put in their time, they can make a few bucks here or there, and uh, and then use that money to buy things they want. And so as we think about this, and, and we're like, you know, who is willing to put play, one play a video game, and two, like, who would be excited to make a couple bucks here or there? It's kids, right? You know, it's it's people who don't have jobs yet. They don't have real money. They've got an allowance. Uh, so that's that's where the idea of KidCoin was born. Where where our goal is to build a currency that is has a video game on top of it, which is a the literal mining game. Right. Uh, so the kids can play a mining game and, and earn coin, and then with that they can spend money to retailers. Um, you know, some of the features of Bitcoin make it really attractive for children because it allows for uh, transactions to be made without any personal information attached to it. Right. Uh, it also allows oversight. If you're a parent and you know your kid's public identifier, it's really easy to track what their activity is. Right. Uh, and, and so, you know, we're also going to look at creating parent tools and retail tools so that kids can shop in a safe manner uh, where parents have oversight and parents have control over excuse me, parents have control over um, whether or not a purchase is allowed or isn't. Right. Um, and then, you know, we also want to find ways to have parents buy into the system and sort of give an allowance in KidCoin rather than dollars, you know, and, and sort of uh, teach their children about managing money and budgets and uh, saving money, investing, that kind of thing. That's very cool. It's very cool. I've never... Um, heard of heard of something like this? It's certainly very novel. Um, but you you know, in order for any currency to have value, the other people have to buy in. So, uh, from your perspective, like where where's the upside for the retailers? How are they? Why would I, as a retailer, accept Kitcoin? Well, uh, for one thing, the fees associated with accepting Kitcoin will be less than accepting a credit card or accepting money through PayPal right? Uh, because there's no possibility for chargebacks. Um, but really, retailers probably aren't going to want to hold KidCoin. They're going to say, you know, like, sure, these things might be valuable to kids, but I don't want them. Right. Uh, but there's, there's good analogs in the Bitcoin community for businesses that provide uh, – instantaneous conversion service for the retailer. Things like BitPay right. uh, and Coinbase allow merchants to accept Bit Bitcoin, but really what's happening is there's a middleman who accepts the Bitcoin and then pays the retailer in dollars. Right. So that's what we're looking to do with KidCoin as well, is, is create the service so that the retailer prices something in dollars and receives dollars at the end of the day, but through our API is able to accept KidCoin and open themselves up to transactions that they wouldn't have otherwise received. Um, excellent. I'm still a little bit confused about the value. So if okay, if, if now the, the retailer is going to be basically accepting dollars, you know, through a middleman, where does the middleman get their value from? I mean, the, the kids are basically earning these coins by playing the game. Um, 
how is it that we translate that into value? Well, there would be an open exchange. Uh, the value just comes from whether or not people buy into it and, and believe in the idea. Uh, so, so there's there's a couple ways to look at this. One is we want to achieve circulation in the coin by making sure that there's value to several different groups that will pass the money back and forth between them. Right. So it starts with kids. They make purchases to retailers. Our goal is then to get parents to buy in for the educational properties and for the oversight offered in the currency so that parents are willing to pay dollars to buy kid coins right. so that they can in turn give those coins back to their kids. Right. So if we can if we can appeal to those three groups, the kids, the retailers, and the parents, uh, then we can have circulation of the coin and guarantee that there's a demand. Right. The other side is there will be an open exchange. You know, anybody is free to trade dollars for kid coin or Bitcoin for kid coin at any time and, and the market will determine if a kid coin is worth one dollar or it's worth a cent. Right. Uh, and at the end of the day, if if more people believe in the ideas behind this system, then the value will go up. And if people decide like it's not working or the, the value proposition isn't right for them, then the value will decline over time as people, there'll be more sellers on the exchange than buyers. Right. So it sounds, uh, sounds like a little bit of risky business. You certainly seem to um, have a passion for it. Where do you feel the overall value of this coin lies? I think that, you know, there, there's studies that show that almost 90% of parents feel that a uh, financial course should be a requirement for high school students, but it's not a federal requirement. Right. Some states require it and some don't. I certainly feel it should be. Uh, and, and I know from personal experience and from a lot of friends, people aren't learning necessarily the right lessons when it comes to money. People get credit cards and they think, wow, I have free money here, rather right. than understanding how interest works and how... They're making, yeah, it might seem free in the short term, but in the long run, it ends up costing them more. Right. Uh, so our goal is to create something that appeals to kids because it's fun and because they can make money playing a video game, but appeals to parents because it's a tool that can teach financial literacy, uh, that can show kids the value of an investment, teach them about interest rates, teach them about setting a budget, and sort of empower a kid to be able to manage their own money and make their own purchases, even though it's through the safety of parental oversight. Fantastic. It sounds like uh, one of the better initiatives that I've seen lately. <laughs> well, thank you. I, I hope so. And, and that's, you know, we're looking towards Kickstarter for it because we feel like, you know, it is a risky idea and it will only work if there is public buy-in, but it's also... Uh, kind of, I don't want to say innovative, but it's it's out there. You know, right. it's something new. So uh, Kickstarter is the perfect platform to go and test this idea out and see if it is innovative or if it's just crazy. It uh, feels to me like Kickstarter plus um, a, a virtual currency coin is um, is almost the same as selling shares in a company, right? Let's say uh, I go to your thing and one of your offerings is you're like, oh, you donate $100, you get 5K coins, right? And that feels like shares in a company, right? Because yeah. you're getting money back for, um, for, uh, for investment in the project, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, and it seems like a little bit of a loophole 
totally. as far as all of that stuff goes, but that's great. Uh, we also, you know, we also want to appeal to the Bitcoin community. There's a lot of early adopters of Bitcoin out there who, um, you know, would love to see kids being educated on the values of cryptocurrency and right. sort of this futuristic method of transaction who I feel like would become backers in the project. So uh, we want to look at Kickstarter, but we also want to look at other crowdfunding methods where people can pay in Bitcoin and, like you said, receive a stake of KidCoin uh, in exchange. That sounds, yeah, sounds very interesting. Awesome. Well, now that all the serious stuff is out of the way, tell me more about your experience with Hearthstone. Was it Hearthstone? Yeah. Uh, well, <laughs> you seem to be loving it. it. Seems to be everyone in the office is playing it. Yeah. Uh, and from a game designer's per, uh, point of view, and specifically from your point of view, where you're a lot more analytic, you like the the card games and the strategy involved. Like, why do you love the game so much? Well, it's very nuanced. It's it's um, you know, you never make a decision that you look back and you feel like, wow, I made some huge mistake. But you probably made a small mistake. And over the course of a game, it's those small mistakes that add up to be the difference between a win and a loss. Uh, and I feel like Hearthstone did a really great job of sort of allowing skill to carry over. But there's still the right amount of luck that makes every game fun and makes every outcome seem random. Right. Um, they also, you know, there's some advancements over sort of... The magic card model, like, I've always been a big fan of, of drafting in magic cards, but you require eight people to all play at the same time, and you end up waiting around for those other eight to finish. Right. Uh, but Hearthstone, they created, it's called the arena mode, and you basically draft from your own tiny random pool of cards, and you can play then, or you can come back and finish your draft later. Uh, so it's a, it's a bit more user-friendly in some ways than, than magic cards, and it's... It's a lot cheaper. Right. I, and you said that you spent $8 already on this game. And like, you know, $8 on a game is, is usually a mobile developer's dream, right? But um, what value have you gotten back from your $8? What do you buy? A lot of sleepless nights. <laughs> <laughs> Why, do you spend your money on cards? Is it... Uh, well, I, I mean, you can buy packs directly or you can buy access to the arena. Okay. And... The arena is uh, basically triple elimination. You play until you've either won 12 games, which is very hard, or you lose three, whichever happens first. Right. And each time you win, you sort of go up in the, the sort of in the prize structure. So if you win four and lose three, then you get an okay prize. If you win seven and you lose three, you get a pretty good prize. Um, and the prize always has a pack of cards at the end of it. All right. uh, and yeah, I mean, $8 seems like a lot, but I've, I mean, Magic Online, each draft costs $12, I think, or 14 Wow. And, I mean, I've spent th literally thousands of dollars playing Magic cards <laughs> over the years. So $8, I mean, it feels like nothing. Right, right, right. For the genre. I'm always interested, like the core game design for me, um, from coming up from the casino industry into uh, to the full, I guess, entertainment game industry, is random reward. Um, the basic old Skinner box, you know what I mean, where you train um, impulsive behavior via just not being able to know what you're going to get, but knowing when you're going to get it. 
Um, and it seems like with with magic cards, like that from the beginning, or most card games or like uh, cards that used to get was like you didn't know what was in the pack, right? Um, some of the Lego minifigs things, like you get the random minifig, you don't know what it's going to be. Yeah. And there's something incredibly satisfying about doing that, even though you might be disappointed when you open it. That excitement that you feel when you purchase it is is incredible. Um, it's the gamble. Yeah, it is, right? I mean, like, if somebody just brought it up, is it like it is the core of what Diablo is all about, right? You point and click and get random stuff. Um, and I, I see this being used less and less sometimes in video games where I've seen it. it's like the core of things, right? A lot of people keep your reward cycles in, but they, they seem to forget the whole idea of like this random reward is incredibly powerful. Where you go back to casino design and it's just the core of everything. A slot machine is just that. It's like you press a button and randomly stuff happens. Um, have you seen a really good implementation of random reward in video games recently? Kind of put me on the spot there. Uh, <laughs> I'm thinking. I mean, it re- to go back to what you were talking about, it really is uh, sort of goes comes down to narrative in some ways. Like people like to be able to imagine possible outcomes, right? Almost as much as they like the outcome itself. I mean, people play the lottery not because they think they're going to ever win, not because they know anybody who's ever won $10 million. It's because when they buy the ticket, they can imagine in their head what it would be like to win and what they would buy and who, you know, how they would quit yep, their job yep, yep. and yep. shove their boss's face in it or whatever. Yeah, it's funny because everything you just said there, I bought a lottery ticket once in my life. It was an incredible experience <laughs> to just buy it and spend two hours in the car before they announced like, the results. Just being like, well, I'm, I'm totally going to quit my job. And shit, all the things that I could do, this is amazing. Right. And you felt rich, like you'd spend your money. And there were a little part of you was guilty of saying, like, no, 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 you haven't won anything. But part of you was elating in this possible idea that you could do all these things. Yeah, That's yeah. It's an awful experience. I mean, just the experience alone was worth the, what, two bucks it was for the ticket. I mean, you, it's a... A common mistake, not just for game designers, but generally, is to assume that everybody is a rational actor. It's like the economic model of assuming that your customers are all rational actors at all times, right. knowing exactly what they want and what they're motivated by. But the people are are not always rational, and like, and people love imagining outcomes, even if they know that the likelihood of that outcome occurring is really small. Right, and then you know, with something like a game where it's not like the lottery, and you'll get it sometimes. You know, even if you have a one in a hundred chance, you'll get it eventually. Then that feeling is really powerful. I mean, right. in like, you know, in an MMO, I used to you're like harvesting resources, and I would mine these rocks. And all I'm doing is finding a rock and smashing it with my imaginary pickaxe and trying to get the rare gem that you can find in the right. rock. And I would do this for hours, even though like it's so mindless. Because <laughs> when you get that gem out of the rock, it really feels super rewarding because you, you know how random it is and right. how hard right. it is. So what game was that, if I can ask? Cause, um... that, that was Vanguard. Vanguard was the... Uh, uh, yeah, it was an MMO that came out I, almost 10 years ago now, right. I think. And uh, had a really rocky launch, but had some really great game design. And 
I was sort of absorbed by it for a few years. So it seems like, I mean, uh, the later levels of World of Warcraft, like that's what it's all about. It's always about like random loot drops and what you get. And you play to get the better armor, which is a random reward. Um, so I guess it's not that uncommon. Yeah. Um, yeah. I just like, I feel like I've been playing um, the latest Assassin's Creed. And like, yes, you get random reward. Like you kill somebody, you get random monies, but you really just don't care. I mean, like it's like it's 56 swords. 48, right? Yeah, it has to be meaningful. Yeah, it has friends. to be like if you like you can kill enough guys and then all of a sudden you've got a tank, you know, and it, it has to have that the upside needs to be huge in order for it to have value, right? And it's that's harder to accomplish in a single player game because a lot of the impetus for people to sort of keep trying to get this really random hard thing to get is because they know that once they get it, and again they can imagine this. Uh, once they get it, they can show it to the community. It works really well in MMOs because once you have that armor and you walk around, you know, the low-level characters see it and they're just like, oh my god, this guy is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Look at his armor. Right, right. Uh, or in a, a card game like Magic Cards or Hearthstone, you can use those cards against an opponent and they're like, you know, they're losing to a card they've never even seen before and just thinking, well, this isn't fair. That guy's got the best card. Right, right. And there's a lot of fun associated with being on the other side of that. Right, right. It always brings you back to, like, your value has to have value, you know what I mean? Uh, and in video games, I feel like we sometimes have this virtual carrot and extend that metaphor too far where you don't actually get the value. Like, let's say for single-player games, which I'm a huge proponent of, I love those experiences, after a while you realize that you're just being strung along and your magical game experience becomes destroyed because you realize like there's just some puppeteer behind the scenes like controlling you, making you move forward, but you're never going to actually get anything good, right? You'll finish a fight and it'll be something mediocre, right? A little bit better, a little bit better. You know that they're stringing you on because they've been stringing you on for 12 hours now, right? You haven't ever gotten that thing where you're like, oh my God, this is amazing, right? Well, but you can't give somebody something so good that then the game's no fun anymore because they're too badass. Yeah, no, absolutely. But you have to... I think you that that might speak to how we make games. We make games very linearly, right? So we say, hey, I am a game designer and I decide that you have to go this path, right? This is your path. And I now say you can't have the experiences that you want to have because it will break my game. Um, versus some of like the, the, the more like um, experimental stuff, right? Like uh, let's say Minecraft. One of the values of it is that you just find these amazing randomly generated things, right? Um, and there's no control over what you can do or what you have to do. It's just like, oh my god, you get this thing. It's great. I'm, um, uh, I'm really looking forward to Dark Souls 2, which is coming out, I think, next week. Really? At least within the next couple weeks. Okay. Um, Dark Souls was like that where it is an open world and you can go anywhere. It's just that if you went the wrong way, you would die over and over and over again <laughs> right. until you learn, like, okay, i got to try to find some different way. So it, it was a really sort of clever way to present a fairly linear game, but in an environment that was very open. Right. It's just that you would get murdered every time you went the wrong way. Yeah. Uh, working with that particular topic, is, I feel like game design is almost like um, a very added adolescent government in a way 
we come, we do some things, and then all of a sudden we're like, this is game design. These are the, you know, these are the, the, the breadth, breadth and width of game design, and there's nothing else to it. Then somebody will come along and do something else, and then government will be chaos, there will be a coup, and then all of a sudden a new government will arise, and they will say, this is the breadth and width of game design. Um, and one of the things is like three years ago to be able to brutally kill a player over and over and over again was something that you would never have heard of right at the same time 20 years ago or 25 years ago that's what all the games did (laughs) absolutely Uh, so you know it comes and goes and and there's cycles and there's also you know it's different for not everybody wants to play Dark Souls and in fact I I played it with uh, with one of my brothers and he died a few times and just said, you know, this game is not for me. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's not for everybody. It, I want to come back to, to that whole specific thing of dying because I mean, um, the, the value in video games, um, I feel like we can put a lot of virtual, uh, like value on it that doesn't actually have value to the player, but there are a few things that do, that do have value. Like one is community that you were talking about before. Um, that certainly does have value. Like my, or for you or my need to, um, to up my status in the community is a very inbred thing, right? Like we have it from tribal days. Um, the other thing is competitive nature, right? Like let's say Quake or you know Counter Strike or any of that kind of stuff. Like that's a very it's a competitive game. You get very primal uh, satisfactions from that, right? Recognize target, destroy target. You have done something that you've uh, been bred for from evolution, right? Um, and the same thing of solving problems, like even puzzle games. You get that little thing of like, oh, I've gotten. I've got it. And the whole idea of dying over and over again and then and then finding the answer like will give you a real jolt of endorphins, right? You really feel it afterwards and it's an amazing thing. Um, so I feel like there's real reward there. Um, is there anything that you think that from a game design point of view we are lacking that may be an idea that we touched on in the beginning of games that we've forgotten about uh, that you don't see that is prominent these days? Well, bef- um, before I answer that, I kind of want to riff on, on what you were it. talking about. Uh, Super Meat Boy! <laughs> I mean, I, I think that, that the idea that people will sort of do something and fail at it over and over and over again is actually like a really powerful lesson. Yeah, uh, It's like, if that can carry over into somebody's real life, then that game has really helped them because... You know, in life, it's easy to look at things and say, well, I'll probably fail, therefore I'm not even going to try. Versus in a game environment where it's safe and it's controlled and it's not, it's removed from your actual person, it's sort of a safe way to learn that failure isn't always bad. You can learn from it and you can improve your tactics and then eventually you can have that success. Right. I think that's a really powerful thing and, and something that's really cool. It's true. I feel that uh, a, a lot of games and game design, the the meaningful stuff carries over into life because it's a mimic of, of life, right? We respond to these particular stimulus because from an evolutionary point of view, we've been bred to do that. Um, the idea of like failing and failing and failing at something when you think that you can achieve it is part of our evolutionary process, seeing like 
there is the banana. I need to get to the banana. How do I do that? You know what I mean? Um, I get hurt, I get hurt, I get hurt. I get the banana. And then all of a sudden that pathway is sealed in your brain and you'll always get the banana from then on. And you um, can all, I mean, not just you, you can share that knowledge. And, yeah. You know, the idea can spread. Yeah. I always wonder about the, you know, how do we learn which mushrooms were poisonous and which ones were <laughs> Yeah, I often thought about that. I often wondered why people still lived in, like, Arctic regions where it just wasn't. They, they, there's a tropical place down there. Everybody's gone down there. You can watch National Geographic and see that that place exists. Why are you still living there? <laughs> but, no, I live in L.A. That's a, yeah. I don't know the answer to that question. Yeah. yeah. Um, well, that about wraps it up. Is there anything in particular that you want to rant about? Not, no, not off the top of my head. It's been a real pleasure talking to you, Roger, and uh, I look forward to seeing what comes out of Collective Mass as well. <laughs> Fantastic. Thank you very much. This is Jimmy Gorham. He is the designer, the game designer here for Fuel LA. Um, and this is Roger Miller uh, from Collective Mass. Please take, a, take the time to take a look at the articles on blog.collectivemass.com. Um, get me on Twitter. Um, it is uh, DJ underscore Ruiz. Um, and um, yeah, I'd love to hear from you. Give me a shout at roger at collectivemass.com. Thank you very much. Thank you.